Hello and welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Dispatched Podcast. I am Paul Cross and I am once again joined by my regular guest Felicity McNeil, PSM, the founder, co-founder and chair of Better Access Australia. Hello Felicity. Hi Paul, nice to see you in amongst the parliamentary sitting week. Oh yeah, I made the mistake of going to the realm. I hope you took a cheap suit. <laughs> Fit right in. Um, now, a lot going on, crazy amount going on, and we are here to have a pretty in-depth conversation about policy and particularly about pricing policy. There is a lot going on. There is a lot that has gone on. A lot of companies are currently or have been dealing with the 1 April catch-up price reductions. And for those who don't or aren't across those, this is an incredibly arcane policy under which the government is retrospectively applying price cuts to medicines. But there is some debate about the medicines that are going to be on the receiving end of these price cuts. And Felicity and I are going to have a talk through a little bit of the history here and why, to be honest, nobody should have been surprised about the nature of the list of over 1,000 medicines that will have been impacted, the relevant agreement between the industry groups and the federal government is worded incredibly carefully. Would you agree, Felicity? Very explicit, Paul. Very. <laughs> Very. And the enabling legislation and the explanatory memorandum, which is a legal document that, that goes with that legislation, was also pretty clear. But we're going to have a talk through that and maybe sort of go into a couple of broader issues about that list of medicines, the background to the cuts and what we might expect over the next nine to 12 months. So let's have a chat about the history. Now, I I would argue, Felicity, that the 1 April price cuts, the catch-up price cuts, is a pretty clunky policy, not altogether well thought through and certainly a podium finish for the worst ever developed, probably competing with the 1 October price increases and stockholding commitment for the poorest policy. But but let's let's start. I just want to start with you about what, what, what's your idea on the policy as an objective? Well, I think it depends what you're trying to achieve, Paul, which is to there are many drugs that the PBS has spent many years from the time that we were trying to capture new listings of combination items to avoid price disclosure. Every time government comes up with a way to make something more cost-effective or cheaper on the PBS, industry finds a way through that legislative determination and finds a loophole. And then government closes the loophole Mm. and then another loophole is found and gradually we see that. You can see a long history from 2005 up until today of government having an intention, people being shocked, Government being shocked when industry gets around it, and then changing it again. So, <laughs> Sorry, um, it's laugh. evolution. It's the it, circle of life, isn't it? It is absolutely the circle of life. I think what's extraordinary about this, and I've, I've got two perspectives on it, and I, I genuinely have my hat on here as chair of Better Access Australia, who wrote to many members of Parliament begging, absolutely begging, for this legislation to be put to a Senate inquiry. 
noting that the industry fought tooth and nail for it not to go to an inquiry because we were concerned about many things. One, which was when you're trying to catch up price cuts on things that have avoided price cuts as opposed to products that genuinely shouldn't have their price cut. And when you're putting up the price of 1,754 medicines to everyday Australians because they pay the full price of their medicines. This is why we have parliamentary debates. This is why we have community committee inquiries, because the devil is in the detail, and it's only once it comes out of that room. It's the same history we have all the time. You and I talk about it. Oh, something's happened and patients are an afterthought. This is another example of where the industry was an afterthought, individual companies, and once again, individual patients. So am I surprised? No. Am I concerned? Absolutely. I think we can definitely say it was a strategic error of historic proportion. Uh, I, I, do, I don't really understand why there was the opposition to proper parliamentary scrutiny. It's protective. It would have enabled the industry to address a lot of the issues it's now dealing with, could have addressed them through that parliamentary process. History clearly demonstrates that. They certainly could have got the list. The, because the officials would have been required. A list that's two years old, by the way. I mean, it's not like this list was recently published and it was created. It must have been in existence in mid-2020 when the government went through the budget and hid the pricing framework in the budget. For, for finance to give me credit for $1.9 billion, I have to have costed it within an inch of its life. I remind the industry of the... Uh, agitation they would give us about price disclosure. And I believe you wrote a lot about it too, too, Paul, which was we were claiming certain amount of savings and then we would do our estimates variations all the time because we had to prove that we knew what would happen with a listing to claim that actual saving. Now, to have got the $1.9 billion, you have to have submitted to finance what the costing would apply to, the drugs that you expected it to apply to, why you expected to apply to it. And that's actually not rocket science. And, you know, full kudos to the department because they have got this more specific each and every time. If you go back to 2015 when everyone was shocked that the statutory price reductions in F1 applied to listed brands of listed drugs or pharmaceutical items, it was because although everyone understood, it wasn't explicit. You read the 2017 agreement and they once again make a great effort to explain that it's about listed brands of listed drugs of pharmaceutical items so that people understand that this is what we're talking about. And then this 2022 agreement, obviously signed prior to that, but effect from 1 July 2022, actually defines under law listed brand, listed drug, pharmaceutical item as defined under the the National Health Act. There is nothing in doubt here. Yeah, and I I think that's – I'm really frustrated at at being in the position of having to defend the Department of Health. I wish I I was still there, Paul. I would have liked that moment. But I I think think their interpretation is – is accurate and and I now look, I understand that companies and patients obviously are concerned about the implications and the minister will deal with that over the next six months. I can imagine Mark Butler must be incredibly frustrated that he's dealing with a mess left by his predecessor, but it has always been that these reductions and there's always been a catch up component when that when those reductions were introduced having been applied at the brand level of the listed drug. It's just that they've never been so big and I wonder if there is an element here of the government sort of testing how far it can go. 
That is quite possible. And I guess I, I take a slightly different view of Mark Butler, Minister Butler, cleaning up or dealing with Minister Hunt's mess. His statement on the record in support of this legislation and support of ministerial discretion and the types of examples that he had had consultations with the former minister's department and the former minister himself about what that would cover. I don't think he's got any mess to clean up at all. I think he knows exactly what it was that was the intention of this legislation. And I guess there are many companies, you know, we work quite extensively on the opiate dependence treatment program, Paul, and I'll, just, I'll declare that concern, which continues to this day for the types of medicines on that space. There's a program that is facing 30 to 36.82% reductions on everything from the sustained release medicines, uh, such as those that you know, Minister Butler specifically mentioned in his speech, down to the, the three-litre bottle of methadone mm. that's actually also subject to those price changes. It, it's very clear. I think what the when we talk about unintended consequence, when we look at a, an explanatory memorandum and a second reading speech which talks about the virtues of increasing prices on small dollar medicines because we're worried about the supply chain, well, we have to be reasonable and consistent. That's where we want to see the equivalency in the policy. If you're genuinely worried about supply in Australia, we really need to think carefully about those medicines that are taking those extreme price cuts. That's where ministerial discretion needs to be considered. Yeah, and I <laughs> I certainly look forward to seeing how the 1 October price increases reduce the number of medicine shortages in Australia. I am very much looking forward to seeing that. But I think the point that you're making, and it's the point that we agree, is that there's no unintended consequence here. There's a, there's an intended consequence. If if companies, the price cuts and the impact is clearly being implemented as it was always in, intended. Now, if there are negative consequences of that in terms of supply for medicines the government does not want to lose access to, then Mark Butler can address that. He can. And as Minister, the former Minister Hunt wrote to companies, to patient groups, and actually said on the public record, he was quite proud of the fact that ministerial discretion had been used over the years during mm. his tenure to increase the price of medicines or to exempt the price of medicines from statutory price reductions. So obviously the industry itself would have a much greater awareness. That's not publicly disclosed, either the actual numbers or the number that applied, the percentages that actually come into eventuality. But we're all relying on that. And like I said, we're We've got to hope that that's exactly what's going to happen. But yes, this is, there should be no surprise here. There should be no surprise to any company who has a medicine on the PBS. You all know the date that your medicine was listed. You all know that when your the brand was listed. You all know when the drug was listed. So everyone should have been very well aware of this for the last two years. Yeah, what worries me is, and, I, and I, I have a lot of respect for the industry. I have a lot of friends in it. And they've always been very supportive of me over the years. But please, please, when you sign these agreements, seek to understand them. Please. And I, and I don't mean that in a patronising way. I mean that in a serious way. If, if the industry is now arguing that these price cuts are not being implemented as agreed, well, then clearly it didn't understand the agreement because if you read the wording of the agreements and if you read the legislation and the all-important explanatory memorandum, which is not – a memo, it's a legal document. If anyone was to challenge these price cuts in a federal court, the federal court will determine the intent based on the explanatory memorandum. It's a very significant document and it is very clear in saying the cuts, the catch-up reductions will be calculated and applied at the brand level of the listed drug. And I just... And I, and I really want to talk to you about, well, well this, this is the su- surprise. We have surprise in inverted commas here. 
Well, I can only encourage the industry to go back, have a look at this agreement, have another look at it, and see what other surprises are in there. Because I don't think anyone should be of the view, the mistaken belief, that there aren't other surprises coming. What else? What else is coming? that you don't know about. And I'm not talking about things like the HTA review, which has all sorts of risks associated with it and all of the other processes that are underway that are now going to be challenged, I think, and a little bit crowded out by this issue around catch-up reductions. But what else is in this agreement and in these agreements that might come as a surprise or might reappear next year or the year after in terms of an interpretation from the government? Now, part of this is I think the industry has to stop looking at these agreements, starting with the base case of this is the outcome we want, so that's the base case and the outcome we assume. I think that the, the process has to be what is the worst possible interpretation of this pricing change for us? And we have to assume that that is where the government is going to take it because that's not me speculating that. That has been the history of this program throughout its seven, eight decades. And I and I'm and I have to be honest, Felicity. I'm really starting to lose it with people who sort of claim surprise when that happens. And look, I, I do hear you on that one, Paul. And I guess there's a lot in the strategic agreement that um, we as Better Access Australia read with great interest from the moment it was publicly released. I think what was that, seventh of September, 2021. There's a lot of things in there. There's some things in there that I, I would be passionately enthusiastic about right now, such as. Um, Clause 7.5, rapid post-market reviews. If only we could do that for the opioid dependence treatment program. There has been something that in my prior role and today watching on as a, as a patient and advocate, there is something that has vexed and concerned the industry for years and they've agreed to rapid post-market reviews. Like I said, could you have please put the ODTP through as a pilot on that? I suspect it'll be to be a little rapid where we can get a price decrease, well, but for right. something like me, which is improved <laughs> access for patients. Mm. But that's supposed to be consulted on from, supposed to be released the draft template for that after July for implementation in 2023. What does that mean? Does the industry understand what that's going to mean for their medicines and their listings? There's the issue that, you know, we're no longer going to have to do the PB11As and sign off and PB and beast to sign off to say, no, we just agreed the price. That's automatic. Well, that's, I mean, I think this is a point. I mean, you and I have spent a couple of hours today going through these agreements line by line and you're, I have to concede, very much better at that than me. But this is a, this is a document of historic proportion. The fact that they're removing the legislative requirement, requirement for a price agreement, for companies they need to understand, that means price change is going to happen to you. And that is a fundamental shift. So this is the pricing equivalent of the government's attempt, the former government's attempt to remove confidentiality protections for PBAC submission sponsors, where at the moment in law, few companies seem to recognise this, but they have all the power when it comes to things like public summary documents. The government was seeking to remove that so they could put anything in the public domain they wanted, but maintain confidence confidentiality of things that they did not want in the public domain. Well, they're essentially... They've essentially introduced that power shift for pricing. Yes, make it easier. It's very difficult having to fill in that form and get someone to sign off saying, I agree the price. But part of it makes, you know, an efficiency in reducing red tape. We can all see the benefit of it. But it also means that there's a, a process and a truncation and a process that suddenly means that the time to respond is reduced. Yeah, so isn't the question isn't the the, the question people have to ask themselves is what is the worst possible consequence of this change? Not 
the reduction in red tape, which is the line that's always used but never comes to fruition. It's like but, you get rid of PBPA. Oh, you know, uh, don't. But what is the worst possible interpretation? And I know people call me cynical, but their naivety does not make me a cynic. That's my experience talking. Having been on every side of this discussion over the years, we, we really have to get down into the details. So when people see in an agreement listed brand, capital L, capital B, and listed drug, capital L, capital D, and a reference to a part of the National Health Act, that is not an offhanded statement. No, it's a definition under law. It's a definition under law, and it could not and it could not be clearer in in the agreement. And the the, the concern I have now is that, understandably, companies are reacting as you would expect. They're they're rea- they're acting to defend their portfolios and seeking the exercise of ministerial discretion. They've submitted their applications. For some reason, the Department of Health has decided that the number of of applications is confidential. I don't know how one number that doesn't reveal anything other than the number itself can be confidential, but I, I'm still fighting that. But they'll get, they will be informed of the indicative outcome in October and that will trigger another response and then they'll get the final outcome, I think, in November. That will trigger another response and then they have until mid-January to apply for the delisting of the medicine. So that's obviously going to apply, going to trigger a whole raft of other outcomes and processes, all at the same time the industry is trying to progress other agendas. Yeah, and I guess that, like I said, I'm I'm very worried about the post-market reviews and what that might mean, and particularly when we're trying to elevate the patient voice, Mm. and that's an important criteria in here. And so when you make decisions about patient access and pricing, that's important to understand. You know, many of these things over the years have been to expand access based on patient utilisation. The thing that really turns my head is that the $1.9 billion was announced before the investment in the surety of supply, basically improving supply chain in Australia and the additional cost, which is, you know, we can all gamble is somewhere between 250 and half a billion dollars to actually put all these price increases up over five years. That comes from, I believe, the $1.9 billion, unless I misunderstand the timing of when things were announced. Every time you ask for one of these uh, catch-up price reductions to be waived, that's a cost to the PBS. So how is that money, is that a shortfall that health will have to make up? We've seen Katie Gallagher, sorry, Minister Gallagher get up in the Senate over the last 48 hours and talk about how they're reviewing decisions of the previous government. They have to cost things. It's fiscally tight, conservative times. We've had Minister Butler say on radio that, you know, we have to go back to a health system that offsets. So every time, and quite reasonably, some of these medicines should be given a catch-up price exemption because of the, the risk to the supply. But where is that money going to come from? And I'd remind everybody that there is a very clear clause in the strategic agreement that says, we'll talk to you. Now, the industry's got a history of being approached seemingly consistently within 18 months to two and a half years of one agreement being signed to adjust to another agreement to find those saving shortfalls. So that's also what worries me. What, what's next? Well, that's right. I mean, let's let's go back to budget in, I think it was, was it October 2020? Correct. We had the $2.8 billion new medicine funding guarantee that didn't have $2.8 billion and we had the immediate and permanent removal of the cost offset policy. Now, were they were they credible at the time? Maybe on the day they were credible, but no one should imagine that, I mean, that new medicine funding guaranteed no money attached to it. I mean, the point is that we're entering a period of fiscal consolidation. You raise a very good point. 
if if there are genuine and established and agreed concerns over supply associated with these catch-up reductions, which is a very clunky policy, then I don't think anyone would be surprised if the government says, hey, it was 1.9 and because of all the exemptions it's now 1.5, so we need 400. You have to anticipate that, not because that would be a new or innovative approach by government, but that's because what that is what they've always done. History is the best lesson. Like there are, there's very few new ideas in the PBS or in policy, government policy generally. They tend to go back to the well over and over again. And I think if the industry believes the world begins and ends with catch-up price reductions and HTA reviews, then they need, they need to think again. And I think there needs to be an, an element of hardness in terms of its interpretation around the environment going forward. It's not going to be the same. Now, the agreement might, might offer some, some, some level of protection. It's not a lot. And, you know, all I'll say is that this focus that's going to be on the catch-ups over the next nine to 12 months, which is completely understandable, it wouldn't it have been a better discussion two years ago? It would have, because you would have actually looked at the types of examples that were automatically exempt and that yeah. that was something that everybody committed to bipartisan support. In, in essence, Minister Butler and his predecessor, um, Minister Hunt, kind of did sort of talk about the things that they thought were appropriate to mm. exclude or to uh, grant discretion to. But this is something that actually could have been really clearly teased out. What do you mean by this? How do we mean to it? It would have allowed the Department of Health to to be clearer. It would have allowed finance to know things better. I, you know, what I worry about is that you get this mass increase of everybody's going, oh, well, I'm just going to apply, which which is – it's not great because if it's been really clear, and like I said, it's not a surprise. It's If you read the strategic agreement, it's really clear. If you read the definitions from 2017, it's really clear. And if you read 2015, it's still really clear. The department's gone to huge efforts and, like I said, full kudos to them to make it absolutely explicit what all these terms mean so that there could be no avoidance of doubt. Yeah, and I'm, as I say, I'm very uncomfortable to be in the position of defending them, but they are they are right. And <laughs> let's let's... I presume that the department played a huge role in wording that agreement because it's worded very cleverly. In the relevant clause, it's the listed brand and the listed drug, and in the appendix that has all of the examples, it doesn't mention the listed brand. Mm-hmm. So it's quite it's been it's been it's been quite clever. But uh, I think you're being overly cynical there, but I'll <laughs> let you take that one. <laughs> but 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 the fact is that if you if you think about the 1.9 billion dollars. And the thought that they would get that out of catch-up price reductions to drugs that have been on the PBS for 15 years, that's inconceivable. We're in this situation now where companies, some of them are, is an existential threat to some of these companies in Australia. And we have to hope that the new minister and the department recognise that and acknowledge that, which is a, which with a policy that is very clunky, but, but, but we're in this situation and it's obviously going to be very dominant over the six to, six to nine months, but I urge people, go back and read this agreement. Don't read the media releases. Don't read the fact sheets. Don't read the introduction and the executive summary. Go through it line by line. And when there's a section relating to a part of the Act, go and read that part of the Act and then go and read the explanatory memorandum because I don't think, and Felicity, you and I have discussed this, we think there are other things in this agreement which might shock when they're implemented. And it's not just 
post-market reviews. It's not just the new cost recovery arrangements that will come in. It's specifically relating to pricing and that some companies are going to, unfortunately, get some more surprises. So it behooves them to go back and work that out. Well, I think it's the same thing that we apply to every other aspect of our businesses. Read the contract you sign. <laughs> yeah, well, well, don't rely on the media release. And the fact sheets, which everyone knows are ironically named anyway, go and read the wording of these documents and understand it not from your own perspective but from the perspective of a government official that's required to deliver a certain amount of money and a government official that might harbour harbour grudges against certain medicines. Felicity, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I know this is a really arcane issue, but it's going to be... It's not when it costs you 40%. That's right. No, it's going to be one that's that actually is going to, I believe, dominate a lot of the policy discussion publicly and privately over the next year. And unfortunately, there are real implications for patients, actual patients, because some companies are facing reductions that they simply cannot accept. Thanks, Paul.